the book of Acts, chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we need the Spirit's help this morning. I need the Spirit's help this morning. Father, lead me and guide me as I open up your word. And Father, we ask that you would warm our hearts this morning, that you would revive our hearts with a, with a love for souls, a love for the lost, a love for the gospel. Father, we ask that you would apply these words to our hearts. And Father, that if any don't know you, that they would come to know you this very day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Many years ago, I heard a sermon of a man who was talking about why he went to Africa to be a missionary. And he reduced it down to humanism. He said that uh, he saw pictures of poor Africans. And he said to himself, they've had such a miserable existence here on earth. And I would hate to see them go to hell after such a miserable existence on earth. And then he, he goes to Africa, and when he, he gets there, he, he thinks that they are poor little ignorant heathens who are just waiting for somebody to tell them about Jesus. And when he gets there, he says, I realize they were monsters of iniquity. They, they weren't poor little heathens. They loved their sins, and they didn't want to hear about Jesus. And they had far more knowledge of God than he could have imagined. And they did not even want to take the time to talk to him about Jesus. And then so he, 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 he goes to his room and, he, and he's praying, Lord, what is this? I mean, why did you bring me here? These people don't even want to hear about you. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is Peter and John doing in our text? Are, are they simply humanist? Are, are they simply doing what they're doing because they see a person suffering and, and that's the extent of their motivation for, for taking them the gospel. Many years ago, there were two Moravian missionary boys who heard about slaves on an island who never heard the gospel. 
And at first, these, these young Moravian missionaries thought that the only way to reach these people were to actually enslave themselves so that they could work among the slaves and share the gospel with them. And, and they were willing to do this. Now, they did not end up having to do that, but, but what would cause two young boys to be 100% willing to sell themselves into slavery to reach a lost group of people? What caused Patrick of Ireland, after escaping slavery, to return to the land of his captivity, knowing that he could be killed or re-enslaved simply to tell them about Jesus? In 1950, a former missionary to Ecuador told a young man by the name of Jim Elliott about a fierce, unreached tribe in the jungle. And then several years later, a 28-year-old Jim Elliott, along with four other men, laid down their very lives attempting to reach these people with the gospel. What, what drove them to do this? What, what drove them to, to willingly die and refuse to defend themselves for the sake of the gospel? Why did the Apostle Paul suffer the way he did? To spread the gospel. I mean, listen to what Paul says. He says, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And then he talks about how he was in danger everywhere he went. And he was tired and he, and he went without food. He went without sleep. Why? What was the purpose of all of this? What fueled this? Why did Paul say, I, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus? Why do we risk offending our neighbors and our co-workers and our relatives to share the gospel with them? Why do we risk fracturing relationships to share the gospel with others? Why do we risk being laughed, and laughed at and ridiculed for sharing the gospel? What fuels our drives commitment to spreading the gospel within any context? Well, this is what Peter and John reveal to us in our text today. Now, we know that Peter and John are on a mission to make disciples of all nations. And their commitment to this mission gets them arrested. And as they stand before the leaders, they continue seeking to fulfill their mission by spreading the gospel even to the rulers who arrest them. And so after hearing Peter proclaim the gospel, the leaders are astonished, but, but they want to stop the spread of the gospel, so they threaten Peter and John not to teach and not to speak in this name ever. But we know they don't back down. So what is motivating Peter and John to continue spreading the gospel even after being arrested and threatened by the Sanhedrin? They're unfazed by these things. Why? What is their motive? What is motivating them to put their freedom and their very lives on the line for the spread of the gospel? Well, Luke reveals to us several motives in this text. So the first thing we see is obedience to God. 
Verse 19, but Peter and John answer them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. And there's two things we note about this. First of all, where we started last week, we must obey God above man. This, this gives us a very important principle to live by as we, as we saw last week. Our ultimate allegiance is to God. If the commands, advice, our laws of man contradict God's, we are to obey God and disobey man. And by the way, notice that Peter and John do not beat around the bush about this. They don't say, okay, Sanhedrin, we won't do that, and then walk away and do it behind their backs. They don't just not answer. But they actually publicly tell them, I can't obey you because you are contradicting God right now. He, he wants them to understand that, that they are at odds with God and they need to repent of that. So he's being evangelistic even in his response and letting them know that God is the ultimate authority, not them. This is clear from our text. But this text also reveals something else to us. The apostles looked at proclamation of the gospel as a matter of obedience. Did you catch that in the text? What did the Sanhedrin command them to do? They said, you are not allowed to speak or teach in Jesus' name. This means you are not allowed to spread the teachings of Jesus. And Peter and John respond by saying, we must obey God. What does that mean? This means they view spreading the gospel and teachings of Jesus as a matter of obedience to God. And why do, why do they see it this way? Well, first of all, they are called as apostles. They, they are the ones who are sent out by Jesus to do this very thing. But this is not the only reason. But they were given the Great Commission. The Great Commission to make disciples and baptize them and to teach them all to teach them to obey all that Jesus commands was not just for one person or two people. It was for the apostles. And it, was, it is for us today as well. And so they were compelled by this. This is a matter of obedience to them. We have to do this as a matter of obedience. Let me just read Matthew 28, 18 and 20 to you again. And as I read this, I want you to ask yourself, is, is this written as a suggestion or is it written as a command? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Is that a command or is it a suggestion? Go, therefore. I love the quote that's attributed to Hudson Taylor. He says, The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. The apostles in the early church understood this. And this is why when Peter and John were told to stop spreading the gospel, they said we must obey God rather than man. We have been given a commission to do this. We must do this as a matter of obedience to God. And this equally applies to us today. 
sharing our faith is a matter of obedience to God. We are not to hide our faith by refusing to share it. We we are not to be ashamed of Christ by by refusing to share His words with others. We are not to disobey the Great Commission by refusing to make disciples in whatever context we can. So Peter and John are doing this as a matter of obedience. And now obedience to this command is not going to look the same for everyone. And it's not going to look the same our entire lives. And at one point in time in our lives, maybe, we, maybe we're a missionary. Maybe we, we have children, and, and that's our primary way of making disciples then. But maybe later on in life, there's a different way we do it. The, the, he's not laying down a specific way here, but the point is this. We are to be disciple makers. This is a matter of obedience for Peter and John, and it is a matter of obedience for us. And now obedience should be enough to compel us to share the gospel, but, but simple obedience was not the only motives of Peter and John. Peter and John are not driven by a cold-hearted obedience. And this is so important for us to understand, because if, you, if you're thinking to yourself right now, well, well, I don't really want this put upon me. This sounds really terrible for me to just have to go out and do this or for me to have to share the gospel with others. If, if you're saying, I don't want to have to do that, you don't understand Peter and John's motives. For them, it's not a have to. It's a get to. So the second motive we see here is, is the, the gloriousness of the gospel. Peter and John say we have to obey God rather than men. And they could have left it there, but they did not. They said in verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, it's not just a matter of obedience. Yes, we must obey God, but but it goes beyond that. We, We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. We must do it. There's something that compels us to do this. What did Peter and John see and hear that compelled them in this way? Well, they give us a hint in their words. They said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So if we want to know what they saw and heard, we simply have to ask, what did they speak? What did they say? And this starts in verse 13 of chapter 3. They say, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release them. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And he tells them, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as, as did also the rulers, but, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And then he goes on in chapter 4. He's speaking with the people. And the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. Why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Notice what he's speaking. 
And then Peter stands before the council and he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Did you pick up on any of the themes that Peter is speaking of there? He spoke of how the Old Testament prophesied of a coming Messiah. And, and how it was foretold that, the, that the, the coming Messiah would suffer. And he spoke multiple times about the, the death, the, the crucifixion of Christ. And he greatly emphasizes the, the resurrection of Christ. And, and he speaks about forgiveness of sins found in Christ. And, and he speaks about the, the fact that salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. And he points them to, to faith and repentance in Christ. These apostles saw the plan of salvation unfold before their very eyes. They were eyewitnesses to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They saw it all. They were eyewitnesses of the life of Christ and his sinless perfection. And they saw his unjust crucifixion. And they saw him raised from the dead after being in the grave for three days. They saw all of these things. And did you notice the huge emphasis on the resurrection? Listen to what MacArthur says. That the content of their message, what they have seen and heard, stresses that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and especially his resurrection. And now listen to this. One obvious way for the Sanhedrin to escape their dilemma would have been to deny that Jesus rose from the dead. That they never attempted to do so provides powerful evidence for the resurrection. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. Had it seemed possible to refute them on this point, how readily would the Sanhedrin had seized the opportunity? Had they succeeded, how quickly and completely the new movement would have been collapsed. So in other words, these men are not sharing fairy tales. They, they tell the Sanhedrin, you, you know that man you crucified? Yeah, God raised him from the dead. And the Sanhedrin never disputed. Instead of trying to dispute it, what do they do? They say, we must stop this teaching from spreading. If this is not evidence that they know that he was actually raised from the dead, then I don't know what is. But it was the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, not, not fairy tales, but the, but the gospel that they were actually eyewitnesses to. This is what compelled them. Calvin points out that there are two things that the gospel consists of. The glory of God and the salvation of men. And Peter and John were witnesses of these two elements. And it was these two elements that, that compelled them. So let us first look at the glory of God in the gospel. Why are Peter and John compelled by this gospel? How does this gospel and how it glorifies God compels someone to share it? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ displays the glory of God in a magnificent way. 
Peter and John talk about how the Old Testament prophesied of a coming Messiah who would suffer for his people and it was foretold that these events would take place. And and we know from our study of Ephesians that even before the foundation of the world, God did what? He chose people to save. And we learned about the eternal counsel and the eternal covenant of redemption where where God the Father chose a people to save and he he chose to save them through Christ. And the Holy Spirit would would then apply salvation to, to God's chosen people. This was all planned out. And so we can see the entire Godhead involved in our redemption before we were even created, before the world was even created. And then because God chose to save us, 2,000 years ago, he sent his son, Jesus, to be born of a virgin, the second person of the Trinity who was fully God, humbled himself by taking on human flesh. We can't even comprehend that. He took on weakness. He took on suffering. He took on human flesh. And being both fully God and fully man, Jesus lived a sin-free life, perfectly obeying the Father. His entire life, he perfectly loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. And he perfectly loved everyone around him as himself. And he lived a perfectly righteous life, his entire life, so that he could be an acceptable sacrifice for us and and have a righteousness that he could actually impute to us since he knew that we would have no righteousness of our own to stand before the Father. And after living a sin-free life in perfect holiness and righteousness, Jesus took upon himself our sins and went to death an excruciating death and the worst part of all was not the the Roman cross but the wrath of the father that he had to drink down and Jesus did this not for a people who loved him and cared for him and was cheering for him but he, he did this for his enemies Christ died for the godly? No, for the ungodly. And God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just look at the the glory of what's being done here. And when Jesus went to the cross, taking upon himself our sins. The Father doesn't say, you know what, let's back out of this plan now. No, the Father crushes him. Pours out his wrath upon his his only begotten Son, upon his beloved Son, in whom he was well pleased. And it pleased the Lord to crush him in our place. And Jesus died. His blood being shed for the remission of our sins. 
And the body of Jesus was buried in a tomb, but on the third day he rose from the dead, giving proof that the Father had actually accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And Jesus walked on the earth and continued to teach for 40 days in a resurrected body before he was miraculously ascended up into heaven by the right hand of the Father. Now consider Peter and John. Men born and sin. Born with, with the guilt of Adam and the guilt of their own sins. What did Peter say? Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He knew it. They were born haters of God. They, they were children of wrath and sons of disobedience from their very youth. And because of their, their sinful natures, they were, they were dead in their sins, unable to see the, their need for salvation. But because they were chosen, the Holy Spirit regenerated their hearts, giving them spiritual life so that they could turn from their sins and, and trust in Jesus for salvation. They were undeserving sinners, but Christ died for them, taking upon Himself their sins and giving them His righteousness so that instead of facing the wrath of God in hell like they deserved, they could stand before the Father perfectly righteous and inherit eternal life. And as though that's not enough, the Father adopted them as children, allowing them to draw near to him in an intimate way, calling him Abba Father, the intimate household name for Father, and also making them joint heirs with Christ, giving them an inheritance incorruptible, men born in sin, now able to refer to, to the, the actual God of creation as Father. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit sent to them as the helper, the comforter, the one who comes with strength. And this gave them courage and peace and strength and boldness and wisdom to carry out their work on earth. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit sanctified them, helping them to grow in their likeness to Christ, the one they loved. And the Holy Spirit was also the seal, the guarantee that they would receive their inheritance. Now, who did all of this? God. What did Peter and John contribute to any of this? Sin. That's it. That's all they had. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a, a sinful man. I, I'm a sinful man, but, but yet all of this had been done for them. And this was all done sovereignly by God. The, the planning and the execution of the plan was all done by God. They took no part in this. Dear friends, do we see how glorious this message is? And how this message magnifies God. Consider how this magnifies the, the righteousness of God. That when his son took upon himself our sins, God did not excuse him, but he crushed him because of righteousness. And how does this magnify God's holiness? And how does this magnify God's wisdom and his goodness, his providence? And his love and his, his grace and his, and his mercy? 
God is so magnified and and glorified in the gospel that, that Peter and John felt compelled to share this gospel with others. Who would not want to know what what this God has done? We love to hear stories of men and women who do tremendous things, who do heroic things. It's in our very nature to, to hear about some marvelous thing or person and we want to share it with others. You read a story online about a real life hero. And then you send it to others and say, look what this person did. Isn't this amazing? Look at the, the, the courage and the boldness of what this person did. Dear friends, there is no greater story than the story of redemption. There is no news or story you can share with another that is greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel magnifies and glorifies God unlike anything else we could think of. There's no hero and no other story who compares. This story, this history of what God has done, that the glory of God revealed in this should compel us to, to share this with others. We want others to know about this very God. Look what kind of God He is. Look at what He has done for His sinful creatures. But then also we have the salvation of men. One of the ways in which the gospel reveals the glory of God is in the salvation of sinners. Peter and John had experienced the salvation provided in this glorious gospel. And this is what they desired for others. What are, what are they doing? They don't, they don't just condemn the Jews and the Sanhedrin for their sins. They, they point them to the Savior. The, 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 the point of what they're doing is not... To just condemn them in their sins and say, you crucified Jesus, you bad people. No, he's only pointing them to their sins so that they recognize their need for the Savior because he wants them to know Christ. They call the Jews to repentance so that they could be forgiven for their sins. They tell the leaders that salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone because they desire for them to obtain salvation. Friends, they have freely received the grace of God and salvation, and so they desire for others to also receive it. This is a huge motivating factor. Peter and John knew that those around them were, were lost in their sins and headed to hell. And because of this, they feel compelled to share the life-saving gospel with them. Dear friends, is this a motivation for us? Is this one of the things that compel us? Do we have the, the apostle, do we have the heart of the apostle Paul? Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 9? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. 
I am not lying. My, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is Paul saying? I'm sorrowful because of my lost brothers, my lost kinsmen. I have anguish in my heart. I wish that I could take their hell if it were possible because I love them that much. Surely a person who who loves a person so much that they say, "I, I wish I could take your hell for you, surely that person would love them enough to share the gospel, share the Savior who actually did take their hell if they would repent and believe. And this motivates Paul. So Paul says, I'm a, I'm a debtor to both Jew and Greek. I'm a debtor to all of mankind because I, has, I have received something freely. And, and I love people, so I have an obligation to share it with others. Dear friends, do we love souls in this way? Our love for souls should compel us to share this truth with others. Do we actually believe what we say we believe about judgment and wrath and eternity and the grace and the mercy of God? Do you recall the story I told you about 10 months ago of Charles Peace? The, the, inf- the infamous criminal in the 1800s. A murderous man who was going to be put to death. And as he's escorted on the death walk by the prison chaplain, this man is reading aloud from the consolations of religion about the fires of hell. And and I don't think that Peace was convinced that he believed that. Because peace burst out and says, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if need be on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. This is a pagan man who had never experienced the grace of God. And he said, if I believed what you say you believe in that book, I would be willing to walk over England on my hands and knees over broken glass to save one soul. Dear friends, how much more should we who have actually experienced divine grace and divine mercy have such an attitude as that? We have been recipients of of free divine grace and divine mercy. So we, more than a pagan, should should be willing to to do whatever it takes to to save one soul from a place like that. We are not eyewitnesses to the gospel the way Peter and John were. But dear friends, there is something that we have seen and something that we have heard that should compel us. Because we have the eyewitness testimony that God has preserved for us right here in this book. And not only that, 
But we have heard the gospel ourselves and we have believed the gospel. So not only have we heard it, but we've experienced it. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't just going to the cross for his disciples. He wasn't just going for those who were alive then. He wasn't just going for Peter and John. But all of those things he did, he did for us. The election. The choosing before the foundation of the world. That was for us as well. The Holy Spirit regenerating us. That that happened to us. And that was not our control. That, That was not our plan. We did not execute that plan. That was done for us so so that we could repent and believe. And and what did God do? He made sure that we providentially heard the gospel and he regenerated us so that we could respond to it in faith and repentance. And then we were adopted as sons and daughters of God. And the Holy Spirit is working to sanctify us right now. And he is the seal, the guarantee that we will receive our inheritance. We have seen and we have heard and we have experienced just like Peter and John. So we should be equally compelled to share this glorious truth with others. Again, this is not a have to, but a get to. Dear friends, we should be motivated to evangelize. Not just by cold-hearted obedience but by love and passion. A love for lost souls and a love for the glory of God and a passion to see souls saved and a passion to see God's glory spread abroad throughout the earth. Does this describe our heart's desire? Let me just give you one final point in conclusion. So thirdly, how did Peter and John proclaim the glorious gospel? This message compelled them. But what did this message compel them to do? They said, for we cannot but speak. This is an important observation for several reasons. Number one, there's a false view that we don't actually need to speak in order to proclaim the gospel. Perhaps you have heard the common saying, preach the gospel at all times, use words If necessary, that makes zero sense. We must use words. Peter and John are compelled to do what? To speak. There's something compelling them to open their mouths and speak. But this is also important because many mistake missions and evangelism with mercy ministry. We were just talking about this a bit on Wednesday. And so we have food banks and we have soup kitchens and we have shelters and and all of these things are wonderful, that they are great. But we must also share the gospel. And we we see short-term mission trips where, where people go basically to do humanitarian work and it's called missions, but there's no gospel being proclaimed. Mercy ministry is good, but it cannot save. We should be using these things as opportunities to open our mouths and speak The life-changing gospel. But then we also have things like people going to the mission field to evangelize with very little understanding of theology or the gospel. And they think that they're evangelizing by their good deeds. They're evangelizing by painting and by building things and by digging wells. 
I love what Vodi says. He says, missions is about the proclamation of the good news. And yet he says that, that nine times out of ten, when someone tells him that they are involved in missions work, there is no gospel involved. And so he asks the question, what makes the good news good? Is it that it provides housing and clothing and food? Well, yes, those things are good, but you can have those things and go to hell. So what we need to understand is, is what is man's greatest need? Man's greatest need is to know the only name by which man can be saved. This is what missions, this is what evangelism is about. Sharing this name. I can remember Paul Washer telling a story about a young man who wanted to go in the missions field with him. And he kept saying, I just want to give my life. You know, I want to give my life, Brother Paul. I want to give my life. And, and Paul Washer says, young man, these people don't need your life. They need the gospel. That's their need. We need to feed people. We need to clothe people. And we need to provide shelter for people because we love them. But if we really love people, we must also share the gospel with them. We must give them the one thing that they need most of all. The good news of the gospel. Dear friends, this requires us to open our mouths and speak. Let us be sure that we are not just allowing people to go to hell more comfortably and thinking we did missions. That's not the task. The task is to open our mouths and speak. So you say, what if I'm cold-hearted here. I'm not just, you know, I'm just, just not passionate about the gospel that way. I'm not passionate about the, the, the salvation of souls like that. What do, I, what do I do? How do I change this? Let me give you several ways. Number one, we need to look to Christ. I can remember the a story Paul Washer told where he said, if you want somebody to, to understand how glorious the sun, S-U-N, is, do you describe the sun to them or do you tell them to go outside and look at it? You, you can describe it all day long and it doesn't do justice, but you, you go outside and you look up at it and you can see how magnificent it is. And, and so it is with the gospel and with, with Jesus. Dear friends, we need to be looking to Jesus. Look at him in his word and remember what he has done for you. Remember how you are a hell-deserving sinner and how he, how he saved you. Contemplate these things and look to Jesus. And the more we do this, the more glorious he will become to us. And the more glorious he is the more glorious we understand the gospel is, the more it will compel us to share it with others. And secondly, some of us need to get outside of our bubbles. Spurgeon, in his lectures to my students, he, he's talking to, to his, his students in um, his pastor's college. And he gives them a bit of advice of, of how to increase their love for souls and sharing the gospel. And he tells them, go into the city with what he called a city missionary and behold the, the drunkenness. Be, behold the, the sin. 
the, the blasphemy. Look, just look, go to the city and look at all the sins around you and look at what sin has wrought. Understand everything that you're seeing, the crime, everything else, this is caused by sin. And he says the sight of the disease will make you eager to administer the remedy. He said it's like a doctor walking a sick ward. And as he's walking the sick ward, he, he knows what these people need. He, he can see them and he can diagnose it in his mind. He knows the remedy. So now he is eager to apply it because he wants these people to become well. Dear friends, we need to get involved in the lives of sinners. I mean, we're sinners too, but, but we need to get involved, involved in the lives of people who, who are outside of this church. We can see their lives and we can see what sin has wrought. And when you do this and, and you remember the words of that hymn that, that we've been sent to deliver captives and to preach good news. And you can see people captive in their sin and they, they see no way out of it. They're captive in their drugs and their drunkenness and their poverty and everything else. Why? Because of sin that should make you eager to administer the gospel which can deliver them. Look at what sin has done. And if you have love in your heart, you will say, I know the remedy. Let me share it with you. And thirdly, and finally, dear friends, we need to be praying to God that he would revive us. Do you pray for revival? You know, one of the things that happens when we look at the history of revivals is that when God sends true revival his people begin to have an, an, an exceptional love for souls. And they begin to desire that their loved ones come to Christ in a way they never did before. And they begin to share the gospel with others because their heart is burdened for souls. We, we need the Spirit to do this to us, to, to revive our hearts. Our hearts are often cold and dull, and we can see people going to hell, and it doesn't bother us. We need the Spirit to, to revive us, to burden us with these things. So let us be praying for that, that the Lord would, would bring revival, that, that would not only give us an increased passion for souls being saved, but that he would make evangelism effectual and that we would begin to actually see hundreds and even thousands of souls saved. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word again and we thank you for how glorious this gospel is that has saved us. Father, if there be anyone sitting in here right now who has not experienced the gloriousness of this gospel, we ask that you would do so, that you would convict them of their sins at this very moment. Show them their, their need for a Savior, that they are, they are guilty before you because they have broken your law. And, and that because they are guilty, they must face you in judgment but help them to see that you have provided an escape from your judgment. You have provided your Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. And that if we would simply believe in Him for salvation and turn from our sins, we would have eternal life. Father, only you can save souls. We ask that you would do so. And Father, we ask that you would 
you would truly revive our hearts. That you would, that you would bring about revival that, that causes us to yearn for souls to be saved and that you would bring about awakening that, that multitudes would be saved here in Holland and other places. Dear God, you can do this. And we ask that you would. Help us not to sell you short in our, in our prayers, but, but, but that we would come before you asking for, asking for things boldly. As the hymn writer said, we are, we are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. Father, your grace and your power is such that, that we can never ask too much. We ask for thousands of souls to be saved here in Holland. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.